be up here, okay? <laughs> All right. So uh, there's, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Tim Keller, he writes an incredible article about sex. It's about 20-something pages. In the beginning, he spells out some of the common views, philosophies that have kind of come up through the centuries about sex. And the three sort of ones that he gives us, the first one is just what's called sexual realism. What is sexual realism, you might ask? Well, this is the view that sex is just a natural appetite. You get hungry, you eat. Yeah, you want to have sex, you just do it. It's just part of life. You got an itch, you scratch it, right? That's sexual realism. It's kind of just, and the, you know, it's the Greek, so they, oh, don't overdo it. But, you know, it's just a natural thing to step into. That's sexual realism. Also, something that you might have seen out in culture is what's technically called sexual Platonism. For those of you philosophy majors familiar with Platonic thought, it comes from Plato. Sexual Platonism is this. It's the spiritual is all that matters. Physical world is evil. It doesn't matter. Your sexual um, urge, it's just an animalistic, weak thing that you should avoid. There's no reason in it. There's no logic in it. The only thing that matters and that's valuable is the spiritual, so avoid that as best you can. It's kind of a necessary evil to propagate the human race. Sexual realism, sexual um, Platonism, and the last one, sexual romanticism. What's sexual romanticism? Well, this is everything that you feel that naturally comes out of you is pure and good. So every sexual desire that you have is good and natural. Not only that... But you actually need to walk in it to realize your full potential. It's, it, the, for the fullness of self-actualization comes when you step into all your sexual urges. That's living your maximal truth. Now, as you think through these, realism, Platonism, and romanticism, you might, you might have seen some of them out in the wild. Because, you know, those are, th you know, three general sort of theories, but like, you know, they just kind of run the gamut, right? They, they span, they, they kind of have totally opposing views to one another, and you kind of see them out in real life. Maybe it's the business person who's happily married, and when he goes on a trip, says to himself, well, I got some urges that I need met out here. No problem with that. Maybe it's the parent, when you're having the sex talk with the parent, says to you, don't ever have it. It's terrible, and if you have sex you will get chlamydia, and you will die. Okay? That's kind of what is that Platonism. And then, of course, you have everything that you can find online. When it comes to porn, you can find anything that you want. Whatever possibly could be in your mind and your heart, you can find... You might need to take me down a little bit, Megan, here. Getting a little buttery. <laughs> um, sexual realism, sexual Platonism, sexual romanticism. And so, considering all these ways to look at sex, what is the Bible's vision for sex? Does it match up with one of these? Has it already kind of been said or has it not been said? Because I think you all know that each one of those paths leads to a very different place. Each one of those philosophies leads you to a very different end. So what's the Bible's vision for sex? What does the Bible have to say about it? Well... We're going to begin in the beginning, in Genesis 2. And I just realized I forgot my clicker, so somebody run me that clicker down while I go to Genesis 2. All right, Genesis 2. It's going to be 20 through 24. I'm just going to read it out for you right here. Ready? 
The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is literally the second page of the Bible. And we get a pretty clear beginning vision of God's for sex in case you God's vision for sex in case you didn't realize it God's glorious design for sex and in verse 20 don't get my clicker in verse 20 <laughs> uh, we see this there for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him there's a relational hole in the next verse, verse 23, he breaks out into song. I don't know if you could see it in your Bibles, but it's indented. It's poetic. It's kind of like a musical. In the next verse, verse 23, <laughs> he says, um, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And why does he get so excited? Well, because now he's got someone that he has a lot in common with. Now he's got someone that he can be close with, form a, a different kind of bond with. They complement one another. And then verse 24 through the end, he says this, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Therefore, in other words, in light of what God just did, this happens. This is where we see the first marriage. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. Now, one flesh, obviously indicating um, unity on a lot of different levels, right? I mean, relational unity, a spiritual unity, an emotional unity. But also, in case it wasn't abundantly obvious, sexual unity. The two shall become one flesh. I mean, physically, that's just swimming in sex, okay? It was hilarious reading like commentators and scholars about this. You got me here, Glenn? No? no. <laughs> Is the clicker just dead? <laughs> Am I just, okay, here we go. We're rolling without the clicker, guys. Um, what was I saying? Yes, sex. <laughs> All right, so it's hilarious reading commentators, you know, reading about this passage, these scholarly people talking about this because they're like, uh, yeah, you know, it means all kind of unity, and, and it also appears to mean copulative intercourse. And you're like, copulative intercourse. So it's swimming in sex is what you're saying. Yes, that's exactly what it means. One flesh also has a sexual component to it. One flesh has a huge sexual component to it. And, and you know, some of you are like, okay, what's your point, Adam? This is my point, okay? This is my point. The universe was cold and dark, and without sex, until God brought it. God brought sex into the universe to bless mankind. God brought sex into the universe to, to bless mankind. And it's in this glorious design for sex that the Bible presents where we see the first purpose. The first purpose here, of course, being unity. One flesh. They're one in a way that they wouldn't be otherwise. 
in a way that they wouldn't be otherwise. When this happens, each time sex happens, there's a devotion, there's a renewal of love and commitment. There's a renewal of love and faithfulness every time that a married couple has sex. And Jesus talks about it this way in Matthew 19, 4 through 6. He says, what God has joined together, uh, let not man separate. He's actually quoting this. He says, have you not heard that God created them male and female, and the two shall become one flesh? Therefore, let what God has joined, let what God has joined together, let not man separate. God did this. God brought sex into the world. It's really wild when you think about it. Consider... uh, chemical physiology too. There's a quote here from a guy named uh, Sanford, if you want to jump to it for me, Catherine. And this guy is a, uh, I think he's a psychologist, and this is what he says about sin. Both men and women, oxytocin is released in the brain during something. Both during Something. Anyway, increasing levels of oxytocin bring about feelings of security, care, and comfort. For example, oxytocin levels surge when a new father holds his infant child. During orgasm, the brain releases oxytocin in men and vasopressin, a neurochemical closely related to oxytocin in men, promoting sexual pleasure and emotional bonding. Endorphins are also released in the brain during sex and produce a general sense of well-being, causing a person to feel both peaceful and secure. Literally, science has confirmed the way in which sex bonds people together. There's a permanence that happens. There's a commitment that's built into our design that happens. It's incredible. First part of God's glorious design, we see this as unity, oneness. The second part that we see, obviously, is procreation. This is yet another purpose. We see this in the way that we, if you're married and you have kids, get to be co-creators with God, get to bring life into the world. I'll never forget when Joni and I had our first little guy, Noah, and holding him, and Joni looking at me being like, I can't believe I did this. (laughs) And I was like, well, hey, I'm here too. (laughs) Just kidding, I'm not actually, didn't do much. Um, And and it's amazing, and co-creators with God raising kids that also come to worship God for all that he's worth. It's the second purpose, procreation. And here's the third. The third comes to us in Ephesians 5, 31 through 32. And Paul says this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So he's quoting the Genesis passage we were just in. And then he says this. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage, sex within marriage, refers to Christ and the church. So what is it then? Well, this third purpose is that it's a sign. It's a pointer. It's an illusion. How? Because this marriage, this sex-fueled oneness, this sex-fueled faithfulness is a pointer of the faithfulness and the devotion that Jesus is going to have for his people. There's already a foundation laid in marriages before the gospel comes into the world. And Paul says, this is a big part of what marriage is, and sex within marriage. It points to Jesus and the church. Three purposes, unity, procreation. We've also got that it's a sign, it's a pointer, an illusion. And of course, now what we're seeing here is realism, sexual realism, the idea that it's just an appetite to be fed 
Oh, the Bible's view of sex is so much richer than that. So much deeper than that. It's so far above and beyond just an urge, an itch to be scratched. And it's not Platonism. It's not inherently evil. God brought it into the world. Of course, it can be used outside of its design, but that was not God's intent. God's intent was for sex to be incredible within this design. Um, so God's design for sex includes unity in a marriage between a husband and a wife, potential for procreation, sign of Christ in the church. Marital sex glorifies God and creates goodness alongside the vision for singleness, like we saw a few weeks ago. So clearly, sex and marriage are not the only way to glorify God, but they're a way. And that's what we're talking about today. And I, I kind of feel like at this point, it makes sense for me to bring up porn and masturbation. Why? Well, because it's very pervasive out here in life and in culture. Um, but I also, like, before we even go to the rest of the Bible, I, I, like, I just want to see, I just, I just want to point out to you, like, just with the vision and the purpose that God's already laid out here in Genesis, like, is there any place that you see where porn and or masturbation could fit in the design that God's laid out so far? Is there any place in which you see it making sense, considering that it's meant to build unity between two people, considering that it's meant for two people to serve one another, to build devotion, to build faithfulness, to build serving love? Is there any way in which porn and masturbation um, point to Christ in the way that he sacrificed his life for the church? And look, I think probably a lot of us know that's true for porn. Maybe you know about the way that porn is deeply tied into sexual slavery and sex trafficking, and a lot of the people in the porn industry are actually um, bound there because they're addicted to drugs. I, I had a friend, actually, this was her story. Um, and I think probably for a lot of us, we don't necessarily need that to be explained to us on the porn front, but sometimes with masturbation, it can be different, I think, because it's just us. Maybe we allow ourselves to, you know, make justifications. and To some degree, that's understandable. But... Like, I just want you to look at this design. We don't have to go to the rest of the Bible. I want you to just look at God's glorious design here for sex and ask yourself, is there any place for masturbation there? Is there any world in which that is helping you step into God's design? Masturbation by yourself? Where you're kind of, it's, I'm honestly, it's, it's training camp for, for self-service, not for other service. It's training camp for self-gratification, not for love towards somebody else. And I know this is so pervasive and so personal, so personal for so many of us, but like before we even go anywhere else, with God's glorious vision for sex, I just want to ask that question and, 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 and encourage us to see if there's a place for porn and masturbation there. And I think the answer is no. In no world do either of those things help you to step into God's design for you for sex. Either of those things. Such a glorious vision of God's design for sex that gives us great joy and in the same moment, pain. Why? Because in the same moment, we realize that we don't always choose that design, do we? We don't always want that. In fact, going back to the romanticism, our desires, in fact, very often are the exact opposite of that. 
for married people, for anyone. And we kind of realize that we actually, none of us lives up to that vision. Not one of us lives up to that vision, which brings me to the second text that I want to show you guys. It's 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. We're going to bring it up on screen here. This is what it says. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. This is Paul speaking to the Christians in Corinth, and this is what he says. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your spirit is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, uh, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with, his, with your body. And so I, I just, uh, if you could go back to the beginning uh, of it here, Catherine. Um, so verses 12 through 14, this quotes, you kind of saw this in the singleness sermon. The Corinthians have written things to Paul. They've asked him questions, and Paul is addressing things in their church and in their life. So this quote, all things are helpful for me, is probably something that they were saying, or they even wrote to him, or that Paul knows that they sort of adhere to. And he begins to challenge their sayings. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. And then this next part, with food, says this. This is what they're saying. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And actually, most scholars take that final uh, quote and move it to the end of the word other. So it says, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. In other words, hey, they're applying this to sex. Hey, the body wants sex, and the body's going to be destroyed anyway, so gratify the desire. But then Paul pushes back. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, Paul says, hearkening back to Genesis, hearkening back to God's design. What's sexual immorality? It's, it's just sexual activity outside of God's design. That's what it is. And then, of course, verses 15 through 17, um, Paul begins to point out to them, you're one with God now. How could you bring him, if you're a Christian, how could you bring him into wrongful sexual activity? And then verses 18 through 20 is where he gives us one of our main takeaways as it relates to sexual immorality, which is this. Flee. You in a place where sexual morality is tempting? Run. We see this in Genesis when Joseph is, um, when Potiphar's wife is tempting Joseph to sleep with him. And what does that dude do? I mean, he's not like, hey, you know what? I don't like this. You go in that room. I'm going to go in this room. And when your husband gets home, we're talking. No, dude, that guy runs, bro. He takes off. And Paul says the same thing here. Flee. And, you know, just to raise the bar even higher, Jesus in Matthew 5 says, not only is it wrong for you to commit adultery, but if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. Jesus raises the bar to that. It's a high, 
high bar. And he, Jesus wants us to live by God's design, not just in our bodies, but in our minds too. The whole being he wants for us. Our whole obedience he wants for us. And so we come face to face again with our failure, don't we? We come face to face again with our failure to live up to God's design for sex. And this shame can sometimes even be expanded and expounded. Maybe you've seen this before. This was happening for a while. I don't know if it's still happening, but there used to be this preaching illustration out there where the preacher would take a bar of chocolate you open up the bar of chocolate, nice whole bar of chocolate, and he'd be like, this bar of chocolate is your sexuality. And then he'd take a bite out of the bar of chocolate, hand the bar of chocolate around the stage, all these bites get taken out of. And then the purpose of the bar of chocolate is, is this what you want to give to your spouse on your wedding day? Gnarly, right? Does the same thing with cars. I remember hearing this with cars. You, are you going to just let this brand new car, which is your sexuality, just get driven around by whoever you want, getting dinged up so that on your wedding day you give your wife a or your, your husband, a used sports car. Is that what you want? And also, I even saw this with a rose. I mean, this was everywhere. Like, I don't know, I got so many of these. With a rose, and they take the rose, and like, hey, pass the rose around the room. Pat Rose gets passed around to a couple hundred people. But this would always confuse me, because I was like, if it's a rose, you know, just hold it by the stem, and you just kind of pass it around. Like, no one's going to sabotage the rose, probably. So he probably had some sus guy sitting at the front before he handed it up to the preacher who would mess it up and be like, see... You know, and it's like your sexuality is the rose. Is this what you want to give to your spouse on your wedding day? Look, what's the point of this illustration? Is this what you want to be? Is this what you want to give to your spouse? And look, maybe some of us do need the consequences of sexual sin spelled out. I mean, Paul does that a little bit in this First Corinthians text. Maybe some of us need to hear it explained that. Our sex life is incredibly consequential, and it affects us deeply. Maybe some of us need to hear it explained that it really matters. But when the gospel is not there, it leads from a place of shame and fear. And I want to point out, this is actually not what Paul does. If you look in verses 14, 15, 19, and 20, he says, God is in you. He says, the Spirit of God is in you. You were bought with a price. What was the price? The price of the Son of God going to the cross for you? This is a part of Paul's motivation for living in God's glorious design for sex. It's not just moralistic. It's not just legalistic, which so many of those illustrations can be. Paul put the gospel in here when he encourages us to do this, and and. This leads me to the last thing that I want to show you guys. This is the last text. It's Luke 7, 36 through 50. Luke 7, 36 through 50. This is what it says. So the context is this is Jesus, and he's in the home of a religious ruler, a guy named Simon the Pharisee. This is what he says. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, 
brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is and who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? who even forgives sins. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the scene. Jesus goes to one of the religious rulers of the day's house. He gets invited. He comes. And a woman of the city, it says, comes in. It's a sinner. It's pretty general. But most people think that she was probably a prostitute. Simon apparently knows who she is. She has a reputation around town. And at the center of the story is a character contrast for you lit majors out there. At the center of this story is a character contrast between Simon the Pharisee, the religious leader, and the woman. She must have heard Jesus preach or something. She knew who he was because at this point Jesus was going through Judea doing his ministry, teaching about the kingdom of God. And in this character contrast between the woman and the Pharisee, we see the woman with a clear view of her sin and her debt, and Simon the Pharisee seems to be unaware. We see the woman bold enough to come to Jesus with her sin in front of everyone, major social cost, and Simon the Pharisee, I mean, he's talking about how it looks, how it comes off, the way that Jesus is allowing himself to be associated with her. The woman feels a deep gratitude to Jesus. How do we see this? She breaks an expensive alabaster jar and pours it all over Jesus, really costly. It's a crazy expression of of gratitude of some sort. And with Simon, well, he doesn't seem to be convinced of the need for Jesus. And I want to ask you something. How do you think Jesus views this woman? Do you think Jesus views this woman as a half-eaten bar of chocolate? Do you think he looks at this woman and says, oh, could have been such a pretty rose with a potentially immense history of sexual sin? Do you think that's what he thinks about her? I don't think so. There's no hint of that at all. In fact... 
He holds her up as an example. She's the center of the story. I mean, Jesus holds her up as the one that everyone should emulate and look at. And everyone in the party is questioning every single thing Jesus does. Allowing this woman to do that, your sins are forgiven. That doesn't appear to matter to him. Because he is focused on holding her up as an example. Why? For the last 2,000 years, this woman's story has been told to all kinds of peoples and nations and tongues. And Jesus holds her up as an example. Why? Because she was bold enough to bring her sin and her brokenness to Jesus no matter what the social cost was. And because she loved Jesus. She was willing to bring her sin and brokenness to Jesus no matter what the social cost was. And she loved Jesus. And she's the center of this story. Um, two years ago, my wife and I were in Denver. And yeah, it was about two years ago in January. And we met someone, uh, a young woman in her 30s. Her name was Lena. And um, as Joni and I became friends with Lena, she began to tell us about her life and we began to learn about her. She learned about our lives. And one of the things that became clear that she began to share with us was that during her 20s, for about eight years, um, she was trafficked basically as a sexual slave. And one of the ways that this happens a lot is they are forcibly addicted to drugs and then they use drugs to manipulate and maintain the status as a prostitute and as a trafficked person. And so she starts to share about her life with us. The suffering. I mean, I don't know anyone to this day who has experienced a tiny fraction of what she's experienced. It was so difficult to listen to. There was, I mean, there was one day I was, I was supposed to go to work. I just laid on my bed and cried for like two hours just from hearing about what happened. I didn't live any of that. Just from hearing what happened, I was incapacitated. It took me months to wrestle with God. Oh my, how have you allowed this? Like what? This is so difficult. And, and then Joni and I got to watch her take steps towards Jesus. And in August of 2020, she became a Christian. And she gave her life to the Lord. And I remember, I can remember where we were when we read this story from Luke. And she's like, we've got the Bible. She's looking at the Bible. She looks at me. And she looks at the Bible. She looks at me. She's like, I like this woman. I was like, I know. Uh, and, and not only that, like, but in case this wasn't obvious to you, in prostitution, the abuse that you experience, unquantifiable. I mean, the type of person that's coming to see prostitutes, the secrecy of it, the untraceability of it, the stuff that happens. I mean, the abuse that she faced in that life. You know, we've been talking a lot about sexual sin, but we haven't been talking about much about sexual abuse sexual sin, choices that we make, but sexual abuse, things that have been done to us against our will. And I will never forget watching her take that to the Lord. I've never seen anything like it to this day. 
it still blows me away how much she trusted Jesus with that. Like I said, I couldn't, it was hard for me to listen to, let alone live. And yet, she came to know the Lord and then continued to take steps of healing and restoration as her love and her trust and her devotion to the Lord Jesus grew. And, uh, and last August, she passed. It's just, you know, that life takes a lot of miles out of you. And, you know, I don't know what happened to the woman of the city in Luke 7. I don't know what happened to her after this, but I know where she is now. I only know a fraction of what happened to Lena. She actually wrote most of her life down in a book and gave it to me, and I haven't been able to read it yet. And I don't know everything that's happened to her, but I know where she is now. Free. Restored. Made new. Which is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. For the abused, for those in Jesus, therefore, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. I want to encourage you. I want you to be encouraged by this woman of the city. This woman of the city who trusted everything in her life to the Lord. Her sin, the abuse, the brokenness. All of us which have, by the way, not one of us is free of this. I want you to be encouraged by her. By the woman of the city who brought her brokenness and her sin and everything to the Lord, not caring at all what people thought. And I want to invite you, if God's Spirit so moves you, to do the same tonight, maybe for the first time. Maybe you've already shared some of your story with people that you love. I just want to point you to her and to her example and also why she's an example. Because she trusted Jesus and because she loved Jesus. And he makes all things new. And I want to encourage you to walk in God's glorious design for this as you stumble forward and as somebody who has had immense victory now that I look back in God's grace. There's so many other leaders in this church. Like sometimes this lie gets told, like I'm going to be stuck in this the rest of my life. I'm despairing because I don't know how I'm ever going to break free of porn, ever going to break free of masturbation. Let me just cast a beautiful vision for you. I want to invite you not to think low of God with small thoughts because there's so many people in this church who've been walking in freedom from it for decades because of God's grace. And people that when they fell, they got back up on the horse. And then they fell again and were reminded of the gospel of grace that it's not dependent on how much they're able to do, but on the unconditional love that Jesus gave to those that are his and to the woman of the city. 
and to lean up. So we're going to have some people in the back that are going to be, would love the privilege of talking with you and praying with you about whatever you want. Whatever you want. And that's going to happen during the last worship set here and after. And, and I want to remind you one more time of this unconditional love and grace of the Lord. He knows everything already and continues to pursue you. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good. Lord, I don't know that I would have believed the story of the woman of the city had you not put it in your wonderful word. The way you hold this woman up as somebody with so much boldness, so much grace. Lord, we're thankful for her. And Lord, by your goodness and kindness, maybe we get to meet her one day. Lord, thank you that you know us and you see us and you see everything. Lord, stoke the desire in our heart to walk in your design and your purposes for this. Stoke the desire in our heart, the trust in our heart that what you have intended is good and reliable and trustworthy. And give us a vision, God. Give us a vision for what you call us to. Lord Jesus, we don't take you for granted. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.